0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar, and Usman Manan, and we will be with you, all God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please. Please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we have some very interesting uh, topics lined up for you today. We're going to be speaking about three topics. Uh, if you're if you're familiar with the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, we'll, you'll know that we usually speak um, about two segments, uh, two main segments. Um, uh but but sometimes on on, on the odd occasion we will have three as well um and today is one of those days we're going to be speaking about three main topics after the roundup of the news um and uh the we're going to, we have a a, a good lineup uh, of uh, of guests uh, today as well um the first topic is going to be ancient human evolution uh, unraveling the research of the 2022 nobel prize winner in physiology or medicine. At the After the eight, eight o'clock news, we're going to be speaking about um, whether or not the elixir of life is moderation. Um, and last but not least, we're going to be speaking about why achieving peace in the world today is is of the essence. So these are the main topics for the day. Remember, this is your radio station and we love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and voice your opinion. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. And like I said, you can talk to us or, or on our socials as well, on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, the tags for both of them are at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so before we get into the main uh, segments, um, uh, Osman, how are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, um by the grace of Allah, I'm good. How are you? Very good, very good. By, by the grace of Allah, the Almighty. Um, and uh, and what's what's the what's the weather like
1: t- uh, today? <clears throat> well, it's certainly gone very cold. Yeah, very freezing today. So. Uh, You know, today will be uh, dry and fine, although the far north may see the odd light shower. Elsewhere, there will be extensive sunshine for many, but far south and east will see areas of cloud building. Um, So it's looking cold. And tonight as well, it will be dry for many with cloud building in from the east spreading across much of the UK by dawn. A band of rain will sweep in through the night affecting southwestern areas and Wales. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow and Wednesday Will be a wet day for Northern Ireland And southwestern Britain With heavy showers moving throughout the day The rest of the UK will be mostly dry But cloudy With brighter spells for (coughs) some Okay And throughout the week I think we'll we'll see spells of rain Sweeping in from the south Clearing southern areas later on To leave sunshine Friday looks to be generally unsettled With a mix of variable cloud. And sharp showers for many. Saturday will turn drier for southern areas, with sunshine developing for Northern Ireland, England, and Wales. Scotland will be cloudier with a few showers at times.
0: Okay, so that's the uh, weather uh, roundup for the week, taking us all the way up until Saturday. Um, and yeah, like you said, it, it is uh, it is cold now as well. So even coming here in the mornings uh you have to wait for your your car to warm up and then and then get ready for, for for the journey as well isn't it um so so yeah whenever whenever we are leaving for work uh make sure you leave a couple minutes early um if you do uh, take a car then uh then of course so, so that you can heat it up and um and get ready for the day if you're using public transport or or walking um or cycling uh then of course that is different um Newspaper headlines, so Hunt takes charge in astounding U-turn on tax. Uh, so most of Tuesday's papers lead with uh, the Chancellor's reversal of tax cuts as the Prime Minister tries to rally support for her own survival. The Eye says Liz Truss has 48 hours to save her pre- uh, premiership with the next flashpoint being this week's Prime Minister's Questions. She is a she is defiant in public but has pu- uh, privately acknowledged that she faces a battle s- to survive this week according to what the paper has said.
1: The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has announced an uh, astounding U-turn on tax says The Guardian as he has ripped up the prime minister's econo- uh, economic plans his uh, changes include slashing the energy price freeze that mistrust had uh, championed repeatedly. Sources told the papers that the uh, prime minister met with Sir Graham Brady, chair of the 1922 committee, on Monday where they discussed the scale of uh, the MP's anger. Mm hmm.
0: The Financial Times says the Prime Minister's future is on a knife edge after Mr Hunt shredded her economic policies while the new Chancellor was rewriting the economic strategy on Monday. Mistrust was holding crisis talks. Several MPs said Sir Graham Brady had already received a significant number of letters of no confidence, according to what the paper has reported.
1: Mistress was warned on Monday night that she was in office but not in power, says the Daily Mail. The Prime Minister acknowledged that she had gone too far and too fast with her economic strategy and has been trying to rally support from her MPs, the paper reports. Hmm.
0: The uh, As Mr Hunt uh, reversed the mini-budget, including the scrapping of tax cuts um, that uh, Mistrust promised just 24 days ago, the Prime Minister said, ghost-like, uh, sat ghost-like, uh, reports The Sun. The paper says the Prime Minister has vowed she will not quit, but has said sorry for the mess.
1: The axe man cometh, declares the Metro. Referencing Mr Hunt's shredding of the Prime Minister's economic strategy, the paper says Liz Truss watched in silence and, straight, and stared straight ahead as her new Chancellor uh, announced the changes on Monday.
0: Humiliated, uh, says the Daily Mirror, as it reports the Prime Minister's own MPs are plotting a coup. One Tory said mistrust has poured uh, petrol over everything, it says. The paper also leads with a picture of Rod Stewart alongside a Ukrainian refugee uh, family he is hosting.
1: Uh, Looking ahead to Tuesday, the Chancellor will confront the Cabinet with a demand to Find spending cuts to restore the UK's economic credibility, says the Telegraph. This comes after Mr. Hunt warned MPs that we must take decision of eye-watering difficulty and a decline to rule out scrap, uh, scrapping the pensions, triple lock or, uh, or a windfall tax, declares the paper.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh families could face up to £5,000 uh, energy bills from uh, April after the Prime Minister was forced to rip up her economic plans, says The Times. Mr Hunt announced on Monday that the energy price guarantee will come to an end in April. The paper reports that Miss Truss is fighting for her survival after six U-turns on her plans in one day.
1: The Daily Star has used salad references to explain story the story leading uh, all of uh, Tuesday's papers, Mistrust is on leaf support and her tax plans have hit an iceberg, says the paper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. Uh, and and, and there's, a, there's an image as well, uh, which uh, I'm sure our listeners will like to see over there as well. Um, all of the papers focus on Liz Mistrust uh, and her government's efforts to restore its economic credibility. Uh, like we said earlier, The Sun says the Prime Minister... Sat silence in the Commons at the uh, new chancellor uh, as the new chancellor ripped up the mini budget. It describes her as being the ghost PM. The Financial Times says she was pale and motionless as she listened to Jeremy Hunt read the last rites on her economic plan. In his sketch in the Times, uh, Quentin Letts calls her a wraith in a state of shock. The Daily Mail says watching uh, Miss Truss put on a brave face, was excruciating. Um, Daily Mirror's take is, uh, quote-unquote, humiliated. Um, moving on to The Guardian, says uh, Mr. Hunt uh, shredded the Prime Minister's economic policies in one of the most astonishing U-turns in modern political history. Offering uh, an assessment on the Chancellor's performance, the Eye says he took charge. Christopher Hope uh, writes in the Daily Telegraph that Mr. Hunt dis, uh, disembellowed disemble- uh, his boss with the calmness of an HR manager firing someone over Zoom. The Daily Express says he showed signs of being someone who just might have the metal to navigate the government through the choppy waters that lie ahead. Um, so, so, I mean, of course, like, like I said, there's plenty of speculation about the Prime Minister's uh, future. The uh, te- Telegraph reports that Conservative rebels have sped up uh, plots to oost her from, uh, 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 or from office. The paper also says Mistrust is expected to have a second meeting this week with the Tory MP and chairman of the influential 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. A move, a move that is likely to be seen as an indicator that her position is now hanging by a thread. Um, so, uh, Osman, what what do you think of uh, of the headlines today? And is there anything that that specifically caught your eye? I mean, I, 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 like we said, all of them are speaking about the same thing. Um, but whether it's through the headlines or maybe other articles within the news, um, what, what what do you think?
1: Yeah, I see an overall very, very negative image of our Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks like nobody's happy. Well, let's see what Mr. Hunt will come in and what he will do. Maybe he can change the minds of the people. Maybe change the state of um, Britain. Hmm. Most likely,
0: most certainly, most certainly. Um, and uh, is there anything else uh, which
1: has uh, has uh, caught your eye um, in the in the other news? Uh, yeah, so it's been a hundred years for the BBC. The BBC has been the heart of Britain for a hundred years since nineteen twenty-two. Mm-hmm. This is when the BBC first um, started. They have like a they have like a timeline here. So in like 1930, first TV service in the world, 1936, 1940, Churchill on air in World War Two. then moving on to 1950s, The Archers' longest running soap in the world. So there are some events which took place. Um, one of the recent ones is the London Olympics, 3.6 billion viewers globally mm-hmm. in 2012, and uh, 2022 is the first major public service broadcaster to mark 100 years of con- continuous broadcasting. So it's a very old uh, um, TV or news channel. Yes, yes. Uh, I,
0: I very, and 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 it's great to see how how much uh, service uh, they have done to the country and helped. Um, as well, isn't it, in, in in supplying us with the news and other such updates um, as well. Um, Russian warplane crash uh, uh, kills 13 in apartment block. Um, at least 13 people have now died after a Russian fighter bomber plane uh, crashed into an apartment block. In the southern Russian town of Yesk, uh, according to what the officials have said, the two pilots of the Su-34 jet on a training flight ejected before it hit the building and caused a huge inferno. Rescuers revised the death toll after finishing their search of the rubble. Russia's emergencies ministry said three children were among the victims. The officials said 68 were rescued from the blaze in the nine-story block. 19 injured people are being treated following the Monday evening crash, according to a report from the pilots. who um, jettisoned from the plane. The reason for the crash was a fire in one of the engines during takeoff. Uh, This is what the Russian Defense Ministry has said. And uh, they added that at the point where the Su-34 came down in the courtyard of a residential block, the plane's fuel supply caught fire. Footage has emerged apparently showing uh, local residents trying to help one of the pilots uh, Pilots who can be seen lying on the ground with a parachute behind him. The port uh, town of Yisk lies near the eastern Ukrainian war zone across the Sea of Azov um, from the devastated city of Mariupol, Mariupol um, and it has been used as a major training ground for Russian, Russia's naval aviation. Uh, Pupils from a nearby secondary school were among more than 360 people uh, evacuated from the crash site, uh, Russian media reported. There's uh, images um, uh, being shared here on the BBC website as well of part of the jet's undercarriage, uh, how how it hangs from a gutted apartment, Um, And then there's uh, various uh, pieces of footage shared on social media, uh, which shows the flames pouring from the apartment block. A uh, local correspondent in Yisk told Russia's uh, state-run TV uh, channel uh, Rossiya24 that uh, two of the apartment blocks caught fire. The Kremlin has ordered national and regional authorities to provide all necessary assistance uh, to victims of the fire. Russia's uh, investigative committee said it had opened a criminal case and sent investigators to the scene. Um, so that was the news for for that uh, the the Russian war plane how it crashed uh, how it, the, the crash killed thirteen people in an mm. a, uh, apartment block.
1: Yeah. Apart from that, we have uh, another big news for the football fans. Ballon d'Or winner Karim Benzema has won the Ballon d'Or this year. First Frenchman since Zidane, I think, oh. won it last time. Mm-hmm. He scored forty four goals in his forty six games. Very impressive, almost a goal per game. Yeah, and Sadio Mane from the the ex Liverpool player was second, and Kevin De Bruyne third. So, it's big news for the for the French mm. French people. Yeah. Last time I think they won was it on nineteen ninety eight. So almost like six, twelve, fourteen years. Yeah, fourteen years. Nice, nice
0: and uh, um, uh it, it, it I, I'm not sure about last year but is is this the the first time in in quite a while that uh Messi and Ronaldo have not been in, in the top three
1: yeah I think so um Messi Ronaldo um well they have won from from the past 13 of these competitions they are they have yeah. combined. They have twelve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I, because you, you mentioned the, the the top three, isn't it? Uh, Mane and De Bruyne as well. But um, but 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 yeah, I th- I, th- I thought they were, they were always uh, in the top three. They one of them would always be winning it. Yeah, but I thought uh, I, I at think least they'd be I don't know about last
1: three. year. I don't. I think last year they didn't give out. Uh, I think it was Lewandowski who was meant to win it. Okay. But it didn't happen because of COVID restrictions. I don't know if it was last year or the year before that. Okay. Yeah, but it's been like two, three years. Messi and Ronaldo are not in the game oh, okay. for, for this Ballon anymore. Oh,
0: well, fair enough. Um, and uh, and with that, we're going to be taking uh, a, a, a very short break. Um, and once we do come back, we'll be speaking about our first uh, topic for the day, my first main topic for the day, hu- ancient human evolution, unraveling the research of the 22, um, um, uh, 2022 sorry, Nobel Prize winner in physiology or medicine. Just to serve as a reminder, after the 8 o'clock news, we're going to be speaking about moderation and whether or not it is the elixir of life. Um, and after that, why achieving peace in the world today is of the essence so don't go anywhere and join us after the break
3: you're listening to the voice of Islam radio broadcasting on DAB via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhis Salam. Illness means the condition when the body does not function normally and health is the condition when all natural matters function in the proper way. The moving away of a hand or foot or any other limb from its proper position causes pain and if this condition persists for a time not only the affected limb becomes useless, but it begins to affect other limbs also. The same is the case with the soul. When a person moves away from God, who is the true source of his life, and departs from the religion of nature, he is involved in suffering, and if his heart is not dead and retains its feeling, he feels the torment keenly. If this condition is not reformed, there is an apprehension that all spiritual faculties might gradually become useless and a severe torment might ensue. Thus no suffering comes from outside. All suffering is generated within a person. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. Why is gambling prohibited in Islam? Material gain and the accumulation of a large amount of wealth is not something that Islam encourages. Having money should not be a purpose. It should rather be treated as a means to be used to achieve higher spiritual objectives. Gambling makes one obsessed with money and encourages greed so that one becomes engrossed within his constant desire to increase his wealth, which goes against the spirit of Islam. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day.
0: Assalamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam Radio Station when we are now going to be speaking about our first main topic for the day. Ancient Human Evolution. Unraveling the Research of the 2022 Nobel Prize Winner in Physiology or Medicine. And remember, like I said earlier as well, this is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call. Um, the 2022 Nobel Prize uh, in Physiology or Medicine has been awarded to a Swedish uh, a g- a genetist, uh, Svant uh, Pabo. Uh, He has been thus rewarded for his discoveries concerning the genomes of extinct uh, hominins and human evolution. To elaborate, Pabo, uh, through his extensive research, has accomplished what previously seemed like an impossible feat. He has successfully sequenced the genome of the Neanderthal, but that's not all. There are many more extraordinary facets of Pablo's research, which we will endeavor to explore and unravel during this segment. Um, so, before we speak uh, about um, his research, Osman, um, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about his uh,
1: Let's his talk background, about the person. please? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, uh, soante Pablo—I don't know if how to pronounce it—but he was born in Stockholm sweden on 20th april 1955 and he attained his phd degree at the university of Uppsala in 1986. he uh, he specializes in the field of evolutionary genetics one of the founder of paleogenetics a field which focuses on the study of early humans as well as other ancient species he has worked greatly on the subject of the neanderthal genome And he became a founding director of the Department of Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for uh, Evolutionary Anthropology in
0: 1997. Mm -hmm. And I mean, whilst talking about this uh, this topics, automatically, if like uh, a few verses of the mind of the Holy Quran come to mind, isn't it? Um, when it talks about knowledge or when it talks about uh, the, the acquisition of knowledge as well, isn't it? So what what, what do you think? What, what does the Quran
1: teach us uh, uh, about this? Uh, yeah, certainly there's many verses regarding this. For example, in chapter 20, uh, God Almighty states that Exalted then is Allah, the true King. And be not impatient for the Quran where its revelation is completed unto thee, but only say, O oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. It's a very beautiful prayer, very short. Yeah, I think very easy to learn as well, and uh, something you should, you know, recite all the time. And yeah. Why not? Who doesn't? Who doesn't want more knowledge? Exactly. Another place, um, God Almighty states that say, "Are those who know, e- who know, equal to those who know not?" So this verse clearly highlights the elevated status of education and those who gain knowledge in the eyes of Allah Almighty.
0: Mm um i mean it's it's amazing how much emphasis uh allah the almighty has put uh in the acquisition of knowledge. Um, and we can see this not only through the verses of the Holy Quran like you 've mentioned and given reference to, uh, but also if the if we go to the narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him um he he's he 's said many a time uh when it comes to to this when it comes to acquiring knowledge uh, but we'll just mention um a a few um, uh, a few just for the benefit of our our, our listeners uh, but uh, um I'm sure our regular listeners will be well aware of these anyway, since we, we often repeat them um, here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that the word of wisdom is the lost property of a Muslim, so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. The Holy Prophet also Said that seek knowledge though it may be found in a country as far away as China. Uh, and remember, this is not uh, saying it uh, now in this t- uh, day and age where it's uh, so easy for us to travel, so easy for us to just book a flight and just go wherever we want, right? but uh but this was at a, at a uh, at a time when there was no planes there, were, there was no such mode of travel the the, the 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 fastest that you can get somewhere would probably be on a horse or something like that mm. um and from saudi arabia uh, all the way to china this is this would be such a strenuous task uh, which would take uh, uh months uh, on end for for someone to actually uh, complete this journey uh, but still, uh, this is this just it just goes to show the significance uh, that Islam has laid down upon the acquisition of knowledge. And last but not least, um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad be the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He also said that seeking of knowledge is obligatory upon every Muslim man and and uh, woman. Um, and, uh, I mean, this just dispels um, uh, so many uh, notions and so many um, uh, 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 feelings that that people have when it comes to Islam, that uh, women are maybe oppressed or they cannot uh, go out and work or they cannot uh, uh, go out and study and other such things. Um, but this is completely contradictory to what Islam actually says. Islam says that uh, seeking of knowledge is, is obligatory upon every Muslim man. And women and 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 all of these verses or all of these these narrations that we have seen um, are for both men and women. It's not uh, limiting it to to say that oh only men should go out and seek knowledge, but rather, I mean, if we if we go to the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his own time we can see that uh, his wife Hazrat Aisha, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, she would actually um have a gathering uh, and and the companions of the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him they would come and learn from her uh, of course this would this would be done yeah. behind a screen uh, or behind some sort of uh, uh, a wall of some Covery. sort so that uh, so that uh, they couldn't see her um but uh, again we, we the holy prophet of islam he actually said that half of knowledge can be can be learned uh, from um, Hazrat Aisha, um, half of the faith you can learn from her, and so people would come and, and listen to her, and she would um, um, she would be she would she would teach them basically. So it's not just about learning, but even teaching that there is no distinction between whether it uh, is from a man or woman or for a man or woman. This is for and uh, uh, for for ab- absolutely everyone, isn't it?
1: Yeah, um, now getting back to the research, to the knowledge which has been acquired about Pabo, he became interested in how modern genetic techniques could be used uh, to further study DNA of Neanderthals. Nevertheless, it soon became apparent that it's extremely difficult to do this due to the DNA becoming chemically modified over time. So uh, it so happens... Uh, that after centuries and centuries, the amount of DNA that is left is quite scarce. And even of the remaining fragments, much of it tends to be contaminated with the DNA as well as humans today. Yeah. <clears throat> so with uh, this passion in mind, Pablo began developing various methods to study DNA from uh, Neanderthals. Uh, to carry out his mission, so to speak, he a- analyzed DNA from Neanderthal mitochondria, The mitochondrial genome is rather small and contains very small amounts of genetic material, but as it's present in thousands of copies, it definitely increases the likelihood of success. And using his fine methods, Pabo was able to sequence a region of mitochondrial DNA from a 40,000-year-old bone, and this was in fact a historic moment, as it was the first time that Contemporary humans could see and study the sequence from an extinct relative. From this sequence, Pablo continued, uh, uh, continued sequencing more and more. He sequenced the Neanderthal nuclear genome. Recently, uh, through uh, sorry, through this uh, through Pablo uh, Pablo's discoveries, a fresh comprehension of our evolutionary history has become a light has come to light.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, I mean, very interesting uh, I- indeed. Um, to get further uh, insight into this uh, and understanding, we're going to be going to our first guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Professor Mark Thomas. Um, uh, Mark Thomas is a professor of evolutionary genetics at University College London and works mainly on biological and cultural aspects of human evolution. He uses a computer simulation. And statistical modeling to make inferences from genetic data, including ancient DNA and archaeological information, on processes such as past migrations and dispersals, uh, natural selection, particularly in response to changes in diet and infectious disease loads, and how uh, uh, dem- uh, dem- demography uh, shapes cultural evolution as well. Assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for being with us today. We're speaking about ancient uh, human evolution uh, and how we, uh, we're unravelling the research of the 2022 Nobel Prize winner in physiology and, uh, or medicine. Um, and the first question that we wanted to ask you was in regards to the relationship between the discovered ancient ho- uh, human fossils and human diversity uh, that is found today.
4: Yeah, well, um, we've uh, we're not they're very a very diverse species in terms of our DNA. So if you look at other species of primates like chimpanzees or gorillas or something like that, they're actually more genetically diverse than we are. And mm-hmm. um, the reason for that is that we're a relatively young species. But we do have bits of DNA from... Well, it, we have to be careful here about the word species, what species means. but yeah. um, But from other ancient humans like um, Neanderthals or or which is a kind of sister sister group that lived in Eastern Asia and um, for a long time um, we've known about these these um, these people for these other other populations if you like of, of humans we've known about them for some time from their fossils but um, it's only by getting the DNA out of their bones that we you could really properly understand their relationship to us. Um, and this is what um, um, uh, Stanty Pabo has pioneered: um, uh, getting DNA out of these these bones, and um, and by by reading that DNA and then by using some um, some very sophisticated statistical approaches. Um, able to get this better idea and now we know that um, that most people in the world outside of Africa have about two percent or just just a little bit less than two percent ancestry from um, from Neanderthals
1: oh, interesting uh, so professor there's something called a DNA and then there's another thing called an RNA could you mm. explain a little bit what an RNA is
4: well, they're just uh, DNA and RNA are, are two types of what we call nucleic acids. These are just the type of molecule um, in our bodies that that holds information, it holds information on how to make things. and those things are mostly things like proteins, which are the things in our body mm-hmm. that actually do do stuff. Um, so so they're very very similar molecules. The chemical differences are only very, very minor. But they do quite different things in our bodies. So DNA um, is in our bodies is found um, primarily in the nucleus, a little bit in the middle of each cell. Yeah, and um, and its main job is to just to keep information, if you like. So it, it's the genetic material. You know, it, it's the stuff that we pass on to our children, and they pass on to their children, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. RNA. Is very related, so it, it, it's really chemically very similar, but it does quite a different job. So RNA is much, much more involved in lots of different ways in how that information that's in DNA. So you can imagine DNA as like the book, you know, the um, the place where it's all written down, or the yeah. or the um, um, the memory store. Um, RNA is much involved, much more in how that information is taken. And then used to make things in the cell like proteins that actually do stuff
0: mm-hmm. uh, very interesting uh, I- indeed um and, and professor thomas um how when, when we're talking about fossils uh, how can we actually determine the age of uh, of them
4: right, so there are various different methods um one way is that you just look at the layer that it's, um, that it exists in. So, mm-hmm. if you've got other things that are buried around the same time and you can get an idea of how old they are from, for example, um, you know, the type of pottery or something like that, then, um, then you can get an idea of how old a fossil is. Now that only works, um, if you've got other things that, um, you know, mm. like pottery and so on. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, really the method that, that, that's most widely used at least for anything over the last 50,000 years is radiocarbon dating and so this this relies on the fact that there are different types of radio carbon, of carbon in the atmosphere and so those different types of carbon called isotopes um, end up in plants and then end up being eaten by the, the animals eat the plants and so they end up in the animals and so on and, and that's that's fairly constant through time but then once that animal dies then the ratio of those different isotopes changes and so by looking at the ratio in a fossil we can estimate how old it is.
1: Okay so uh, what is the basis for determining the age of the ancient human fossils?
4: Well that's generally radiocarbon is, is used so it, it only really works up to around 50,000 years. So anything older than 50,000 years, um, we have to use other methods.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, last but not least, could infectious diseases have been a considerable factor in the extinction of uh, ancient humans, do you think?
4: it's yeah, a good question. It's not one we really know the answer to at the moment. Mm-hmm. We do know that there have been multiple episodes of ancient diseases, not just um, in the last few thousand years. We do know about the last few thousand years to some extent because we can actually detect the DNA of those diseases, or at least of some of those diseases, diseases like plague. we can actually detect Mm. it in the bones of these fossils. And so that... um, So, yeah, I mean, plague seems to have been a major... um, a major disease, at least over the last few thousand years. We also know, um, by looking at DNA that's actually in us now, you know, it's, um, it's actually um, with us all the time, that there have been big episodes of disease over the last millions and millions of years, like twenty million years or
5: so. Oh.
4: So, so, and we, and, and not just us, um, but um, have affected many, many different species. So. So they're there, you know. They're a part of. They're a part of life. I'm afraid um, um, these these diseases and these epidemics. Yeah. Um, th- were they important in the extinction of certain human groups, like Neanderthals? Um, uh, we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. We don't think that that's the reason that the Neanderthals um, disappeared. But, you know, you can't you never say never with these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. certainly
6: important.
0: Oh, Very interesting indeed. Um, Professor Mark Thomas, thank you for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing an insight uh, into this uh, a very interesting uh, topic, um, uh, to say the least. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead.
4: My pleasure. I hope you do too. Likewise. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Zero to zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. that was Professor Mark Thomas, um, a, a professor of evolutionary genetics at University College London and works uh, mainly on biological and cultural aspects of human evolution. Um, he uses computer simulation and statistical modeling to make inferences from genetic data, uh, including ancient DNA and archaeological information. Um, sharing his thoughts with us we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show, Professor Gregor Larson um, uh, he, uh, he, Gregor Larson is an evolutionary genetic, gen, 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 genetist uh, notable for his work on animal uh, domestication Ancient DNA, Human and Animal Dispersal. Um, uh, Gregor Larson is a professor in the School of Archaeology, Ar- Archaeology at the University of Oxford and director of the Wellcome Trust um, um, uh, Paleogeonomics Ge- uh, and Bioarchaeology Research Network. Um alaykum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us. Um, we're speaking about human evolution uh, today in this first segment uh, for the day. And the, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what is the relationship uh, between genomes of extinct hominins and human evolution? Um, and also, why is it important to discover this in today's world?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's fantastic that you just had Mark Thomas on, who is a, a very old and good friend of mine. So I, I only cut the very tail end of that, but it was <laughs> interesting to hear what he said the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Um the, the relationship there is that in order for us to really understand, say, the last um, 30 to 100,000 years worth of human evolution, there are a whole range of different lines of evidence that we can use. And historically, they've relied upon bones and material culture and stone tools and archaeological sites and investigations and that sort of thing. But what's been really revolutionary over the last couple of decades is the ability of Um, people like uh, Mark and a lot of our colleagues to be able to acquire and sequence the DNA from a lot of these bones that include not just humans but our closest relatives uh, who alas are no longer with us Uh, but using that DNA it gives us such a tremendous amount of resolution and resolving power to be able to distinguish between very closely related uh, both populations and individuals and that is allowing us to piece together the the history of the last 100,000 years
1: and um... What possible factors are involved in the extinctions of ancient humans and other species?
7: Yeah, that's a great, I mean, things go extinct all the time. I mean, 99.9% of life that has ever existed on Earth over the last three and a half billion years, uh, probably more than that, um, has gone extinct. It's sort of a, a natural cycling of um, you know, you know, like almost as individuals. If you think of populations or species like mm-hmm. that, where we are all born and then we experience the world to some degree, and then we all die, and that is true of, of species as well. And they also give rise to what are called either daughter or sister species. And so the factors that are involved—I mean, part of it is just a living and dying thing—but there's all kinds of things, from uh, just uh, all kind of different sorts of change involving climate change, or just uh, different selective pressures, that, or diseases, or any number of challenges that. Uh, populations face that mean that they don't survive over huge long periods of time but they survive long enough often to leave their bones in the archaeological record for us to be able to go and uh, collect them and then sequence them and be able to discern the relationships they had with uh, both populations at the time as well as our own species now
0: Mm -hmm. and uh, did uh, neanderthal uh, genes pass on disease and immune genes to modern humans
1: do you think
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's really fascinating is because, as I was saying about the resolving power and just the sheer amount of information, I mean, a human genome is approximately 3 billion base pairs long, which is a very large number, and there's a whole lot of potential changes in there. And once we have the sequences of, say, a Neanderthal genome, or a large number of Neanderthal genomes, or for that matter, a Denisovan genome, or for that matter, any number of human populations that have existed over the last Uh, a couple hundred thousand years, what that means is that we can then compare all those different genomes and we can start looking at similarities and differences as well as then the kinds of ways in which those genomes uh, affect the uh, individual's ability to deal with certain diseases or have susceptibility to certain diseases. And what's been shown very neatly over the last decade or so is just the number of ways in which genomic portions that are in the human population that have been derived from Neanderthals and Denisovans have played a role in all kinds of things, from um, what we would call phenotypic traits, like the ways in which you look and appear um, as you develop to your immunity or your propensity to be immune to certain uh, challenges uh, to your immune system, or to having novel um, uh, diseases attack you, but then you have a, an increased ability to be able to handle that simply because you have some ancestry in some part of your genome from the Neanderthals or Denisovans. So being able to unpick all of that has just been absolutely fascinating.
1: Mm. And based on your studies conducted in the past, what, what does your research suggest about ancient DNA, human and animal dispersal?
7: Uh, well, in a nutshell, basically, it's everybody's moving and having sex with each other all the time everywhere. Um, and that's not just people, that's animals as well. And uh, one of the things that we study in our lab is dogs. And we can see over the last, say, twelve, thirteen thousand 13,000 years, if not much further back than that, that When you have a dog population that is intimately connected with a human population, both of those things often move in tandem, and when people move, they move with their dogs, and then they encounter other people and other dogs, and when they do so, uh, very often, you get a lot of uh, what we call admixture or gene flow between those two populations, and therefore creating kind of a third population as a mix of those two, and then that happens again and again and again, and what that means is that it makes, all of that then is recorded in the genome, and that makes it difficult for us, but not impossible to try and work out that entire deep history pattern of moving and mixing and mating and moving and mixing and mating, which just keeps happening on a a recurrent basis. And uh, the upside of that um, is that we are able to, of the ancient DNA, is that we're able to go back and look at those those exact spaces, whereas right now, if we were just to look at the modern population, Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult for us to unpick the past or try and infer the past, simply from a modern population alone. I mean, the al- analogy I like to use is that if you sit down to have uh, a lovely hot bowl of soup and it's just all homogeneous and red and it tastes, sure, it tastes good, but if you were then to try and guess the exact combination and timing of the addition of the ingredients that went into mm. making that soup, there's probably a hundred different ways to do that. Damn. And what? having the ancient dna allows us to do is to go and say okay this was this ingredient and this time in space and that mixed with this ingredient at this particular time and therefore it led to this particular ingredient which then led to uh, another mixing and mating later on and so Mm -hmm. being able to go back and actually piece together the sequence of events that led to the modern population is something we can only do with ancient dna
0: wow wow very very fascinating indeed uh thank you, uh Professor Gregor Larson. I'd love to have you on for long uh, for, for for longer, but we unfortunately we are coming up to the news now. Um ho- hopefully, God willing we'll try to, to get you on in the future sometime to, to speak more uh, about this topic as well. Um and thank you. Uh all the best for for, for the rest of your day as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Professor Gregor Larson is an evolutionary genetist uh, notable for his work on animal domestication, ancient DNA, human and animal dispersal. Um, He's a professor in the School of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Um, And we are going to be going straight to our last guest for this segment. Uh, Dr. Yarek Brick is a lecturer uh, in, in molecular biology. At the University of Huddersfield. He is a, comput- a computational uh, biologist who studies patterns of genetic variation in various populations of wild animals to learn about their evolution. He did his uh, PhD in Lip- uh, Leipzig during the. Uh, 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 um, 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 uh, and, and Professor Svante Pabo uh, was his PhD supervisor, but he did not and was not. Um, uh, uh, working on ancient DNA over there. as peace be upon you good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show
6: Good morning and thank you for having me You're welcome and thank
0: you for for being with us um, According to Professor swanti Pabo uh, patients with fragments of Neanderthal DNA have a higher risk of developing severe complications from the disease. How does this work? Uh,
6: well, so Ultimately, this works through sex, because by interbreeding with Neanderthals uh, when we were coexisting in, in Eurasia these tens of thousands of years ago, uh, mm-hmm. this led to the transfer of genetic material between them and us. And we can trace uh, in modern populations of humans some of uh, these fragments of their genes and their variants of genes uh, in our populations. And then when we look at what these uh, fragments of genes or variants of genes are associated with, we, we know that some of them are associated with uh, uh, better or bigger susceptibility to a disease or complications with the disease, but also some uh, phenotypic traits, so, so traits that we have, like you know, whether we have freckles or whether we respond good to bacterial infections. So it's not all bad. And for example, with, with COVID, Svante uh, was one of the first to notice that some variants of that we received from Neanderthals, that we inherited from our Neanderthal ancestors, uh, on chromosome three. If you had the variant uh, from Neanderthals, you are over three times more likely to end up on mechanical ventilation when you have COVID. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there is another set of variants from on chromosome 12, also received from Neanderthals, uh, that that uh, le- leads to 20% reduction in becoming severely ill with COVID. So it's not all. Uh, a bit bigger susceptibility to the disease it's a complex mixture of traits that turn out to be important for us today that we received from Neanderthals and
1: um, could you tell us about your experience studying the evolution of wild animals based on patterns of uh, genetic variation
6: so uh, most of the work that that I do and and this is conceptually similar to, to work on, on ancient DNA is that we we have this technological uh, advantage that we are able to sequence lots of different sequences, lots of different organisms relatively cheaply and easily today. So we, have, uh, we are able to obtain the complete genetic information from various organisms. And then by comparing these sequences with one another and with other sequences of other populations or other animals, we are able to deduce what evolutionary forces and in what way they shaped this genetic variation. So whether the populations were large, whether they mixed together or not, whether they moved around a lot, uh, whether they interbred uh, together, and so on. So it is quite fascinating, I think, for me to, to, to be able to uh, you know sequence a, a bunch of mice from a forest somewhere uh, in Europe, and then by analyzing mm-hmm. these uh, genetic sequences, be able to figure out how they moved around after the last glacial age, for example.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um uh Doctor Brick, we we would have loved to have you on for, for, for longer, but unfortunately the eight o'clock news is drawing up close to us. Just one last quick uh, quick question that I'd like to squeeze in. Um what were the okay. first animals to live on earth and what impact did ancient animals have on human evolution? <laughs> uh
6: I think their impact is none or very minimal. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, except for the fact that we share uh biochemistry, right our cellular processes are all practically identical to the first animals but the 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 first animals that was about seven hundred fifty to eight hundred million years ago and they were uh sort of what we uh call today sponge sponges or comb jellies or jellyfish and corals so they were similar to those mm-hmm. and obviously it's it's really hard to study those animals because they didn't have any hard skeleton so they they don't fossilize yeah we just know from comparing the sequences of today's living corals and jellyfish that they are most closely related to organisms that were alive 700 million years ago on the planet
0: mm-hmm. okay Okay very very interesting indeed. Um uh, Dr Yarek Brick, uh, thank you for 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 being with us and again like I said we uh, we we'd, we would have uh, loved to keep the conversation going but unfortunately time has gotten the better of us. Um until next time thank you uh, once again and we hope thank you, you have very a much. wonderful thank day. Thank
6: you again for having me. Thank yeah you too. take
0: care. Thank thank you. Bye. Bye bye. 0208-687-7878. that was Dr. Yarick Brick, a lecturer in molecular biology at the University of Huddersfield a computational biologist who studies patterns of genetic variation in various populations of wild animals to learn about the evolution uh, he did his PhD in Le- uh, Leipzig uh, and Professor Swante Pabo was actually his PhD supervisor as well um just uh, wrapping up uh, the the first hour um the uh, promise, Messiah upon whom be peace, uh, when it comes to the acquisition of knowledge, he said that the members of my sect shall so excel in knowledge and insight that they will confound everyone with the light of their truth, and by d- and, and by dint of their arguments and signs. Um, and uh, I mean, His Holiness as well, the current head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim Community. On various occasions, he has uh, said. Even recently, on his uh, trip uh, to America as well, he uh, he also uh, mentioned uh, that uh, as well. When it comes to the acquisition of knowledge, here is the eight o'clock news.
1: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed.
0: As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam radio station uh, here on The Breakfast Show. Just a quick time check for you. It, it is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 18th of October, 2022. Um, and we were, if you are just uh, tuning in, we were speaking about ancient human evolution Unraveling the Research of the 2022 Nobel Prize Winner in Physiology uh, or Medicine, um, spoke to a few esteemed guests as well, Dr. Yarek Brick, Uh, Professor Gregor Larson and Professor Mark Thomas uh, in this regard. uh, And uh, I mean, like like we were saying earlier as well, very fascinating uh, things that we've seen from this discussion as well. Um, In this uh, segment, uh, we've got two more segments for the day. Uh, We're going to be speaking about the elixir of life and whether or not moderation is the answer to that. Um, And last but not least, we're going to be speaking about achieving peace in the world today as well and how important that is um but yeah getting into this uh, this first uh, uh, topic uh, after the news uh, of elixir uh, of the elixir of life being moderation or not um from dieting to sleep to exercise we adopt all sorts of extreme lifestyle changes in an attempt to prolong life in pursuit of a long life but what if extremity is not actually the solution What if we adopted the middle way, moderate our lifestyle rather than extremize or intensify? Well, this segment will delve into some of the current research in the field of aging and health. Um, So just a few uh, quick points before we speak about maybe... Uh, a few secrets to to healthy and long life, um, and uh, <laughs> how our genes play a part in determining a, a, a person's lifespan, and other such things as well. But if uh, if you can give a bit more, more of an introduction
1: uh, to to this topic, uh, Osman. So this uh, topic came from Britain's oldest man. It says moderation is secret to long life on his 110th birthday from the Metro. So, John Alfred Tinniswood is the UK's oldest man, having celebrated his 110th birthday recently. John was born in Liverpool in 1912, survived two world wars, saw the moon landing and the Spanish flu, and was double jabbed against COVID. Um, according to him, moderation is the key to longevity. Adding he does not feel old and keeps up with his friends, he advises that moderation in exercising writing and listening is important since you should not stay with one thing all the time or you will be on a narrow path john puts his longevity down to relaxing and enjoying his weekly fish and chips he warns others not to exceed their normal limits
0: Hmm. I mean that's 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 quite something, isn't it? To to say the least. Well, it's it's a secret everyone knows. I would say. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, I mean it's it's amazing. Like uh, at the age of 110, uh, yet he still feels young, keeps up with his friends, um, has has like for for instance fish and chips uh, on a weekly basis as well. Um, this is not it's something that you would uh, expect of uh, of a hundred and ten year old. Mm. So I mean, um, yes, it is a, it is a well known uh, secret, but uh, but nonetheless, we should be making proper use of uh, of this as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, he's living his living his life.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. <laughs> Um, So 10 secrets to healthy and long life, Uh, exercise, healthy, eating, staying happy, etc. The the first one uh, on this list that we have uh, is that according to numerous studies, nuts can lower cholesterol, blood pressure, inflammation, diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, levels of belly fat and some types of cancer as well. Uh, Due to the presence of the bioactive ingredient uh, uh, curcumin, um, which uh, may help maintain brain, heart and lung function as well as offer protection against cancer and age-related disorders, turmeric is a fantastic alternative for anti-aging measures. According to numerous studies, eating a diet high in plants lowers the risk of dying young, cancer, the uh, uh, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, depression, and cognitive degeneration. Additionally, some evidence indicates that consuming more meat may increase your chance of developing certain uh, diseases and dying
1: young. Uh, Your longevity can be greatly increased by experiencing happiness. In fact, throughout a five-year study, uh, throughout a five year study period, people who were happier experienced a 3.7% decrease in early death, and happy people may live up to 18% longer than those who are less happy. Stress and anxiety may dis- drastically shorten your life. Heart disease, stroke, or lung cancer are the three leading causes of death for women who are stressed or anxious. Um, laughter and optimism can help you release tension when you're feeling stressed, which, uh, which may help you live longer. And according to research, having strong social networks can increase your lifespan up by up to 50%. You might respond to stress less badly if you use these networks or just like um John John Alfred Tennsword like he says I'm I'm still keeping up with my friends yeah. so that might be what like his his main secret <laughs> <laughs> increased his life by 50% Yeah yeah uh, and yes. both coffee and tea may lower your risk of developing chronic diseases as well as lower your risk of dying young and according to a new study longevity is associated with uh, regular sleeping patterns and a healthy amount of sleep time However, too much sleep can result in depression and low physical activity, which may affect your lifespan negatively.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and on top of that, being physically active, of course, it can lengthen your life as well. Um, and uh, smoking has a substantial association with illness and early mortality. Um, I mean, from this, we can see that, uh, I mean, we've, we've mentioned uh, a lot of things which we can do or abstain from um, or, or consume. Uh, in order to maybe live a longer and fuller life. Um, But at the same time, it is uh, essential to keep in mind that all of these things need to be done in moderation. Uh, And that is key, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's what the topic is today. Um, And I mean, whether we're talking about, uh, we spoke about how nuts can lower cholesterol. Uh, We spoke about uh, drinking coffee and tea. We spoke about, Physically being fit, keeping up with your friends, all of these things. But but that doesn't mean that these are the only things that you should be doing, or you should excel so much in these things that uh, that you forget everything else. That you, all you eat or all you consume uh, is nuts or turmeric, <laughs> or or, yeah. you, or you only exercise all day and all night. Of course not. I mean, everything needs to be done in moderation. And even if mm. we go to prayers, we we mention this a lot uh, here on the Voice of Islam Radio Station. But even as Muslims, we are told that our duty is to, uh, of course, worship Allah the Almighty, to render thanks to him, and of course, service mankind as well, isn't it? And Even for that, Allah the Almighty hasn't said that you should just go into the jungles or or go into the forest um, and just pray 24-7. No, he said that there there is a balance to life. Uh, He set uh, prescribed times that these are the times in which you should be praying. Um, And and in other times, go out, service uh, 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 humanity, service mankind. Um, look after yourselves. Look after your family members, um, and uh, so many other things as well. It's all about keeping a balanced uh, life. Just so another that short
1: key- secret uh, when I want to mention in the Holy Quran. God Almighty has mentioned that if you want that we we give you life on the earth, you should be beneficial to other human mm. beings. Exactly. So this is a very big secret, and like this is how you build your social circles. Yeah. Um, circle, and this is how you are you prolong your life. Definitely.
0: Definitely. Um, And with that, we're going to be going to our first guest for this segment. We do have with us on the line Owen Jones, uh, who is the author of the book Moderation is Key. Uh, She has a degree in accounting and finance. She got married soon after university and was a housewife for over 25 years. Her husband passed away in 2017 and in his latter years suffered the consequences of predominantly unhealthy habits uh, which made Owen a passionate health and wellness advocate. Uh, She is regular in conducting uh, voluntary work. Her experiences include time with the Alvin Ailey Dance School Committee in New York City and an orphanage in Nigeria. She is currently involved in educating on cancer prevention. Um assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you
8: for you're having
0: w- me. You're welcome and thank you for, for being with us. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what motivated you to write your book, Moderation is Key, and could you give us a, a brief description uh, of your book as well, please?
8: Yes, um, so I was um, motivated to write the book, Moderation is Key, because I myself had been um, overweight in my um, late teens up to my, you know, um, 20. And um, I just, you know, um, was not happy. I wasn't healthy and I, you know, um, I lost weight and I lost it quite, mm. you know, easily. And I, you know, was you know, I was eager to help people, you know, achieve the same results as I, I did because I, I had seen so many people struggle and I wanted to help them. So the book Moderation is key. In the book, I am... Um, you know, remind people that they have only one body, and, you know, so they have to look after that one body so it serves them well. And I use, um, you know, um, the scripture, I'm a Christian, I use, I use, um, you know, scripture in the Bible that, you know, reminds us that, you know, our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are the Lord's temple. So I believe that, you know, seeing your body as the Lord's temple is a good motivator to look after it, you know, intentionally, you know, each you know, um, healthy exercise, healthy. Hmm. So that was um, that's a, um, a brief description of my book and why I wrote it.
1: Thank you. And uh, speaking of stress, uh, what 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 are the methods or uh, the steps you can take to to manage stress?
8: Um, with stress, um, I I found that um, um, it's got to be managed, you know, intentionally because you know you cannot, I mean, even when you're eating well and exercising, if you don't manage stress, your health can run away from you. And, you know, I found that, you know, um, setting boundaries in your life, for instance, you know, um, not um, working constantly, taking time to, you know, um, to breathe, you know, smell the roses, go away on vacation, just take, you know, you know, downtime. You know, very important. Again, you know, the Bible talks very, you know, much about you know stress. I mean, God tells us, you know, you know, not to handle you know our cares. He tells us to cast our cares onto Him, and He tells us that because He knows that He has not, you know, given us bodies to to bear stress. And you know, I like I heard an analogy once where we should, you know, sort of like, you know, do with stress what a discus player does with, you know, a disgust, a discuss throw the disgust, you know, away, as far away mm-hmm. you know, from them as possible, and that's what we should do with stress. We should cast our cares onto the Lord with, you know, cast our cares onto the Lord, and that scripture is in First Peter um, chapter 5, verse 7, and I can read it for you, it says, "...Cast in the whole of your care, all of your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all, on him." he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully this is you know work in progress for me because it's, it's not easy because you know it's just you know it's natural for us to want to sort of like you know um, take care of our worries ourselves but you know the point is you know if we're true to ourselves worrying is, is futile you know it changes absolutely nothing but just stresses us you know makes us ill and there again you know the Bible says in Matthew you know 627 it says can any of can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? You can't. So it's futile to worry. So I'm learning to, you know, um, cast my cares onto Him. Setting, you know, learning to set boundaries. Learning to, to breathe. Learning to sort of like, you know, just, you know, just. You know, smell the roses and not
0: worry. Yeah, I mean, you're very right. It's it, it's it's uh, like you like like your like your book states. Uh, moderation is absolutely key um, in really uh, maintaining is. a healthy lifestyle. And you spoke a little bit about uh, intentional eating. So, uh, could you tell our listeners um, what you mean by intentional eating habits, and uh, on top of that, the importance uh, of it as well, please? Yes.
8: So, with intentional eating, it's. Um, it's basically a conscious choice to plan what you eat and to eat, mm. you know, moderate amounts of mainly healthy foods and exercise as well. And, I mean, one of the best ways to, you know, to um, to plan what you eat is, you know, it starts with, you know, your grocery shopping. So write a grocery shopping list. Don't go to the grocery store, uh, you know, hungry, because when you go to the grocery sto- store hungry, they're probably going to go to the, you know, the aisles that sell the, you know, easily you know, available you know, um, you know, processed foods that yeah. are, are no yeah. good to you. So make make a good list, you know, and um, you know, um, uh, buy healthy foods, plan what you eat be- beforehand. Because you know, if, if you don't, you know, you, you don't eat you don't eat intentionally. You just eat mindlessly, hmm. and that's when the, that's when the trouble starts. If you plan your meals. You know, you you set yourself up for you know for for success in your you know, you know um, healthy living quest. Yeah, so make and, sure uh, you
1: eat before you go shopping.
8: Yes, yes. So you're not running to the you know um, um, aisles that sell you know the crisps, the,
1: the spreading <laughs> the, the snacks,
8: the, the sweets, and all of that. Yeah.
1: And uh, why is it important to incorporate nutrient dense food in our diet? Uh, diet to maintain good health.
8: Um. Well, what are nutrient diet, What are nutrient dense foods. These are the healthiest foods. So available, they are you know they're not only nutritious, they're mm-hmm. minimally processed and you know relatively low in calories. And you know examples of these are fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, fish, unprocessed um, um, lean meats and um, uh, poultry. And you know the, the main the main you know um, foods that you we need to be you know. Um, um, careful of our processed foods, heavily processed foods, and by mm. these I mean you know, the, the, the crisps, the the, the chocolate bars, uh, the um, uh, the biscuits, and all of that. And you know, uh-huh. it, th- those are not those foods are not the foods that you know God has blessed us with. Those are the foods that the food giants have made. And may I say that they have they've, you know been very intentional about you know, making them so that, you know, we are addicted to them, we, we can't stop eating them, you know, and, you know, it it they do us no good at all. So if we eat the nutrient-dense foods, which I've, you know, um, said are, you know, fruits, nuts, nuts and seeds, you know, whole grains, lean meats, yeah. those are the foods that, you know, God has provided us with. And if we eat them minimally pr- processed, and we set ourselves up, you know, for, you
0: know, um, a healthy, healthy life. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 certainly. Um, and uh, I, I mean, f- from this, we can see how important it is for, for us to... Um, obviously, maintain a moderate lifestyle, uh, and of course, look yeah. at uh, nutrient dense uh, food in our in our diets to, to maintain good health. Rather than, uh, like you said, uh, going uh, to 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 the aisles and shopping, in which uh, all we can see is just snack uh, junk food, isn't it?
8: Yeah. Could, can I just also add something? I I find that one of the one of the easiest ways to sort of like you know, like I said, plan your meals, eat mm. the nutrient nutrient dense meals, and I mean. For some, if you if somebody has you know kind of you know eating mainly processed food, it's gonna be it's gonna take time to sort of like you know wean themselves off. But if you make the effort to plan your meals and you know start to eat mainly nutrient dense food, then you know perhaps you can just have you know like a couple of biscuits as a dessert, as opposed to having you know a packet of crisps and you know biscuits for a meal. That's what I did. I you know I weaned myself off eating primarily you know. Uh, processed food, started to eat more nutrient-dense food, and I would eat sort of like maybe a biscuit, you know, or, or two, maybe a um, um, part of a, you know, of, of, of a, of a of the chocolate bar, but when I read, when I wrote my book, I actually sort of like, you know, gravitated further away from the processed food, because I started, I learned more, and I, you know, I write about that in my chapter, chapter five of my book, I, I, I learned more. Just you know how much effort, how much you know research and development costs that you know the food giants have put into you know um, getting the right balance of you know salt, processed sugar, and you know um, unhealthy fats to get people addicted to mm. their food. So I, I eat even less of them now, and I'm hoping that you know, when people read my book, they can they can see you know how those processed foods. The only, the only body, the only people who are benefiting from them are the manufacturers. Our bodies don't benefit from them at all. And it's not what God, you know, provided for us to eat. It just isn't.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, most certainly. Um, thank you, um, uh, Owen Jones, for, for for being with us, answering our questions and sharing uh, uh, these pieces of information and, and tips uh, with our listeners as well to to maintain a, a healthy and balanced uh, life. Uh, thank you once again. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well.
8: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks. 8 is the number for you to call. That was Owen Jones, uh, the author of the book Moderation is Key. She has a degree in accounting and finance um, and uh, she is regular in conducting voluntary work and her experiences include Uh, time with the Alvin Ailey Dance School Committee in New York City, an orphanage uh, and an orphanage in, in Nigeria as well. Um we're going to be going straight to our next guest now, uh Dr. Chris Gaffney, uh, who is a senior lecturer in integrative uh, physiology at Lancaster University and does research into the physiology and metabolism that underpin disease health and athletic performance. Aslamikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome and thank you for, for being with us. Um we are speaking about uh, obviously having a balanced uh, lifestyle um, not too much of, uh, of of any one thing like for instance even when it comes to exercise or eating uh, good foods like for instance nuts we spoke about you don't just eat nuts so obviously you have to have a balanced uh, lifestyle as well isn't it so for the benefit of our listeners um, please could you enlighten us on what integrative physiology or exercise science uh, actually is please
2: yeah, of course. So starting off on the physiology side of things, so physiology is trying to understand about how the body functions. So integrative physiology in particular is trying to understand the mechanisms, so the real reasons why particular things change in response to, for example, disease and athletic performance that you mentioned in the introduction. When we think of exercise science, exercise science is trying to understand why why sport? why physical activities, not just in sporting settings, but even, you know, things like doing the gardening, for example, why they are good for our health and how we can optimise those particular types of exercise to try and improve our health long term. Mm
1: -hmm, Thank you very much. Uh, Would you kindly uh, elucidate how there can be too much of a good thing and conversely too little or something notorious?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think, um, I mean, if we think on the exercise side of things, um, I would certainly advocate that, you know, unless you're an elite athlete, moderation generally is key. So I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when people are embarking on things like marathon training, for example, you know, it's important that people um, progressively build their training, that they don't suddenly just try and do a marathon, for example. Um, But at the same time, we have to balance that with getting a sufficient dose of exercise um so although there's good evidence that you know you can do really high intensity exercise for small amounts of time a day you do need, do need to stress the body enough to to show an adaptation so um it's finding that balance in the middle in terms of too much of a good thing um although it's it is incredibly rare. Um, But with um, the advent of things like CrossFit, for example, so extreme exercise events, and you sometimes see this in marathons, for example, there is a risk of something called rhabdomyolysis. So this is when people do really, really extreme exercise, uh, often for very prolonged periods, sometimes in extreme heat, things like that. Um, you can develop um, extreme uh, muscle pain um, and this can result in hospitalisation from these extreme exercise events. So even something like exercise that we know is really, really good for the body, it is possible to have too much of a good thing.
1: And how can the amount you consume and your diet's nutrition influence longevity? Does the eat well guide to a balanced diet pitch in?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I would say that um, exercise and nutrition definitely go hand in hand. And I think it's important to to do both of those things. So maintaining an active lifestyle um, and also having a good balanced diet as well. So thinking of um, nutrition and longevity, there's really good evidence from model organisms such as worms and flies all the way up to rodents um, that can show that if you reduce the amount of calories that you eat, you can prolong your lifespan. So there's there's good evidence to suggest that that is beneficial. What I would say is that there's the good quality evidence in humans is lacking um, and there are some potential downsides that have been highlighted with that. So, for example, if people are to reduce the calories, your susceptibility to uh, stress, for example, so this Mm -hmm. could be disease or something like that, might be a little bit greater than um, somebody who's maintaining a normal calorie diet, for example.
1: And speaking of worms, you mentioned, uh, can you can you tell us and our listeners on the Breakthrough Molecular Muscle Experiment, worms in space, you are part of, uh, perhaps starting with uh, why something physiological is being studied out of this world?
2: Yeah, sure. So I was involved in a project um, about three or four years ago where we launched worms uh, known as C. elegans to the International Space Station. And this was trying to understand um why, why we lose muscle in space so when our bodies don't have gravity to to resist against we lose that muscle mass um, and this has a lot of related relation to the aging process so linking it back to your previous question um spaceflight is a model of accelerated aging so we know that some of the changes that happen within the body within six months of spaceflight are actually very similar to what you see in on earth but over ten twenty thirty years so you lose bone mass you lose muscle mass and what we were interested in by sending worms to the space station was to just see if we could understand the reasons why that happened so some of the genetics behind that and to explore some potential treatments and drugs and therapeutics and so on
1: mm-hmm. Thank you very much
2: No oh. problem, thank you
0: uh, It was uh, wonderful speaking with you and uh, sh- thank you for sharing your insight into this uh, very interesting topic uh, We hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well
2: No problem, thank you very much for having me on
0: You're welcome and thank you, bye bye 0208-687-7878 zero zero eight, eight, seven, seven, eight, seven, eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Chris Gaffney, who is a senior lecturer in integrative physiology at uh, Lancaster University, and does research into the physiology and me- metabolism that underpin disease, health, and athletic performance. Um, I mean, we can see that there's 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 so much for us to keep in mind, isn't it? When it's uh, uh, when we're talking about maintaining a healthy life um we need to have a balanced diet we need to make sure that we incorporate exercise in our uh, in our lifestyle as well and small uh, bits and bobs that we can do here and there like uh, for instance uh, walking to 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 work or cycling or um maybe if you take public transport then you can get off a, a stop or two earlier and uh, and walk the rest of the of the journey i mean anything that we can do small small things that we can do to really um keep ourselves fit um and of course stress management is is absolutely key as well isn't it because uh, we need to uh, manage our stress so that we don't uh, um, take too much tension um, and uh, live. Uh, I wouldn't say live a carefree life. Of course, you need to be mindful of the things that that are happening around you, uh, within your circles as well. But uh, it's all about uh, managing the stress in such a
1: way that it doesn't take a, a detrimental toll on mm. you, isn't it? Yeah, I would say like you shouldn't worry about things which are out of your control. Mm. So, that, like I had some friends we especially during like exam times, after giving the exam, they would like stress about the answers. Well, I think this happened, this happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say just it's done. It, just, so now, you know, forget just pray about for it a just good result. was exactly, yeah, yeah. done is done. Prepare for, the, for your next um, test. Mm. And uh, His Holiness, Azamizah Masoor Ahmed, um, the head of the Ahmadiyya community, may Allah be his helper, also uh, mentioned something about a long life. I'd like to mention this. So he said, God gives longevity to things that are beneficial. We should endeavor to sincerely and constantly work towards the reformation of mankind. But this reformation cannot be through, cannot be brought about with mere words. Rather, we should first reform ourselves by abiding by all the commandments of the Holy Quran. So again, uh, uh, like I mentioned before, the 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 secret to longevity is being beneficial, being useful. Exactly. You know, in, in, everywhere in the world, you see if something is not of your use, you have a phone. If it stops working, if it stops calling, you throw away. So the same applies to humans. If you don't do your job, if you do, if you are useless, basically, nobody is uh, is gonna need you. Nobody wants you. Yeah. So yeah. then you technically, even if you are living, you're just forgotten by people, and there's a kind of a death.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Most certainly. Um, and with that um, actually just one quick uh, thing that I'd like to mention before moving on to the next segment um, there's a narration from the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him where apologies <laughs> where once uh, while uh, they were on a journey um, Hazrat Abu Musa may Allah be pleased with him Naraysa, when, uh, when they were on a journey with the Holy Prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and people started exclaiming rather loudly Allahu Akbar that God is the greatest the holy prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that O people adopt a course of moderation you are not addressing one who is deaf or absent you are addressing the one who is all hearing ever present and is already with you and I mean from this we can see and the promised Messiah upon whom be peace he's also stated as well that if you wish God in the heavens to be pleased with you then be as one with each other just as two brothers in a mother's womb be kind to your subordinates, your wives and your needy brothers, so that kindness is shown to you in the heavens if you become truly his, he will also become yours um, and it just it, it just it shows us that uh, uh, we, we we always need to keep, adopt a moderate life even when it's something uh which is beneficial for others as well when it's uh, when you're helping others and stuff like that as well. of course you need to look out for your own family as well so mm-hmm. so everything yeah. that we do it needs to be in moderation it's when it talk when we're talking about moderation uh, when we're talking about worship even that you need to you don't just pray 24/7 uh, like we mentioned earlier there's set times for this when you're uh, servicing mankind and helping humanity there's a time for that when you're uh, spending time with your family, that, there's also a time for that as well. So these are the things that we need to keep in mind. Um, and when we do that, of course, we will be able to um, um, live a, uh, a, a, a better and healthier lifestyle. Um, and with that, we're going to be going to our last segment for the day. Why Achieving Peace in the World Today is of Essence. Um, well, in the world today, uh, it is imperative to strive to, to establish peace on all levels. On countless occasions, um, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Hazar Miza Masoor Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, has brought the world's attention to the renewed threat of a nuclear war. At the inaugural reception of Battle Ikram Mosque um, in Texas, USA, uh, excuse me, His Holiness uh, addressed uh, the present perilous state of the world in the following words Unquestionably, today the world uh, teeters on the brink of disaster as nations around the world are engulfed by a ferocious storm of political, economic, and social unrest. The war in Ukraine has been raging for months, and dark clouds indicating even greater turmoil and warfare are hovering. Uh, ominously above us. Opposing political blocks and reliances have been progressively entrenched as the world becomes increasingly polarized. The result is that the peace and security of the world is unraveling by the by the day. Until recently, threatening uh, to unleash nuclear weapons was considered unthinkable, but now such threats are uttered on an almost daily basis basis. Um, And this is the state that we are in today. Um, To get further insight into this, we're going to be going to our first guest for the show, Dr. Stephen Hall. Uh, Dr. Stephen uh, Hall is a lecturer uh, and is assistant professor in politics, uh, international relations and Russia at the University of Bath. He specializes in post-Soviet politics and uh, authoritarianism. His research focuses on author, uh, author, uh, authoritarian learning. And he has been pu- published in journals such as Europe, Asia Studies, Russian Politics and East uh, European politics as well. His book on authoritarian uh, learning in the post-Soviet uh, space will appear in 2023 with Cambridge University Press. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Uh, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you for for being with us. Um, could you briefly explain what impact a war may have on global uh, economy, please?
9: Well, it's a good question i think uh you know using the example of russia's invasion of ukraine we can certainly see that any war of that scale and probably a bigger one would have catastrophic consequences for the global economy america possibly is about to go into recession as is europe um, the price of oil and gas uh, would rise astronomically as we can see and we can certainly see that it's very likely that if the grain deal which is being done between russia and ukraine was to collapse then obviously the price of bread grain would go up as well which would drastically affect uh, the global south so any war uh, however, minor is going to have significant repercussions for the global economy. But a war on a scale of Russian invasion of Ukraine or higher would be catastrophic.
1: Mm-hmm. Being, a, being an expert in the area, uh, would you like? Uh, would you kindly enlighten our listeners on what um, authoritarian learning is?
9: Authoritarian learning is uh, how. Autocracies or authoritarian regimes learn best survival practices. So they learn from each other or they learn from past domestic experiences, developing a palette of best practices to remain in power. This isn't just repression. This is through co-optation or legitimation initiatives. And they take ideas, as I've mentioned, from each other. They're in constant uh, dialogue constantly trying to adapt and often they get things wrong but Mm -hmm. by collaborating together they're more likely to get certain things right in order to survive
0: Mm -hmm. and uh, it it can be argued that the world is rapidly moving closer to a nuclear war since the cold war um what do you think can be done to de-escalate the rising tensions
9: well, I think that this is one of the great uh, questions uh, of, of the past few months in terms of we there is certainly a lot of talk uh, of nuclear weapons. I think at the moment in regards to what's happening in Ukraine, it is just that. Um, but certainly there are tensions between America and China per se. Um, and I think that there certainly has to be increased dialogue, how that would happen when countries don't want to talk, I can't give you an answer. I think that the United Nations has been seen to be to need reform. That's indeed true. And it sh- there is the possibility that through some sort of reform of the United Nations, through dialogue, then this, that this situation can be escalate, de-escalated. But there still remains a norm that nuclear weapons are... Reprehensible, and hopefully that norm can still bring us back from the from any sort of brink in terms of the use of nuclear weapons.
1: And in your opinion, what is the most crucial step to take for world peace?
9: Well, I think, as, I, as I've said, um, the only way to, for state for world peace to be achieved, and we all want this aim, is for states to, governments to come together to have dialogue with one another. How that's achieved remains to be seen, and I think that there is certainly the, the organisation that is supposed to bring about world peace, the United Nations, has been seen to be ineffective, and there is a decrypt, Growing need for reform in the United Nations, I think that world peace can certainly be achieved through dialogue, through cooperation, and through people to people relations and that is probably still the best way to re- to continue world mm-hmm. to continue towards world peace
0: yeah most certainly I mean this is exactly what his Holiness keeps on reminding world leaders uh, uh, across the globe as well that uh, you mm. need to have this dialogue you need to look out for other people's interests as well well not other pe- people the whole world um well, exactly it, it, Exactly. It's, it's, it's not just about looking at your own vested interests, but it's actually thinking about the the whole world at large uh, and only then can we actually progress um dr stephen hall uh, thank you for for being with us for answering our questions sharing your insight into this topic uh, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well
9: thank you very much have a good day thank you bye-bye
0: bye bye zero is the number for you to call that was dr Stephen Hall uh, who is a lecturer and an assistant uh, professor in politics international relations and uh, Russia at the University of Bath he specializes in post-soviet politics Um, And his research uh, focuses on authoritarian uh, learning and he has been published in journals such as Europe Asia Studies, Russian politics and East European politics as well. We're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. Dr. Marina Myron, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Defence Studies Department, King's College London. She specializes in military strategic uh, studies with a focus on Russia's military capabilities, including land, air, sea, space and cyber domains and its doctrinal thinking. She has been invited um, to numerous international events to cover Russia's military, including CyberSec Forum in Poland and Finnish National National, uh, Defence University's Russia Seminar 2022. Since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Dr. Myron has appeared on multiple media outlets such as BBC, uh, BCC, uh, Channel 4 and Channel 5 to comment on the events on the ground as well as the uh, geopolitical situation. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show.
10: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, We're talking about a very important topic here today. And the first question, um, just getting straight into the questions really, um, the first one that we wanted to ask you was, as someone working in the Defence Studies uh, Department at King's College London, um, could you briefly explain to our listeners what aspects of research you cover?
10: Well, basically, um, luckily we all have some sort of freedom to focus on things that are um, relevant to UK's national defense so the uh, different researchers are taking up different strengths and different areas for instance I'm covering Russia um, as you have already kindly mentioned in the introduction and um, looking at cyber and also information warfare as well as obviously Russia's military capabilities um, however this is not the only strand of research I'm doing. And so a lot of my colleagues are multifaceted in the sense a lot of them are doing, uh, for instance, a subject like military ethics. A lot of them are focusing more on UK and there are others who are focusing on outward on NATO on the United States. So we have a cohort and um, doing these different topics and then we bring them together in order to make Sense of what our research brings. And obviously, we're also dependent on whatever is interesting to the international community, which then guides our research um, through funding. Uh,
1: what exactly is military ethical education, and why is it important to ensure it's delivered?
10: Well, military ethics is often misunderstood and is uh, pinned to international humanitarian law. And it's thought of um, as this old discipline stretching back to antiquity, uh, which is kind of this Western concept based on religion. Mm-hmm. And what we are essentially doing is we're talking about it as an analytical approach. So we're doing more of applied military ethics. What that means is that it doesn't really say what you should do in conflict or um, mm-hmm as part of a preparation of conflict, you know, following the international laws of war. Rather, what it is about is if you are faced with ethical challenges, and nowadays we have quite a lot of those ethical challenges related to, um, let's say, emerging military technologies, such as Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence or, you know, technologies used in the cyber domain. So how do you ethically think about those. You know, what questions should you be asking yourself, not only at the political and grand strategic levels, um, which would be the Ministry of Defense, but also uh, at the lower echelons of military command, as a soldier in battle? um, What questions do you ask yourself? For instance, if your adversary is not acting according to the international humanitarian law, should you then abide or Does it give you, does it warrant you um, freedom of action in a sense that you're then free to use whatever force you deem necessary, even if it's not in compliance? So it's a way to think about ethical problems, and it's a way to obviously um, internally strengthen the unit cohesion among the armed forces, educate them about the existing laws, but more than anything, it's a way to guide thinking. In a more general way, which is not linked to any philosophy or religious beliefs. Mm
0: -hmm. And uh, would you, for the for the benefit of our listeners, would you kindly uh, illuminate on why you chose to study uh, uh, military ethics, um, and how it can actually help uh, the the world, arguably on the brink of a nuclear war?
10: Well, the choice to study military ethics. Came naturally when looking at different conflicts. So, I have studied military history and more specifically mm-hmm. approaches to counterinsurgency. And um, there you can see whether a state or an insurgent abides by such laws and what consequences it might have. So, um, the important part here is that, you know, in war, you also have the neutral um, or sometimes believed to be neutral portion of the civilian population. So the argument goes, if you behave ethically, then you are less likely to alienate the support of that population. So from this perspective, you know, there are different layers to military ethics. And from mm-hmm. this perspective it is important so when we're talking about crafting military strategy or crafting operational plans uh, things like you know collateral damage have to be taken into account and you know what response it might have what consequences it might have um for the likes of um environment uh, population and so forth so for instance when we're talking about uh, now nuclear weapons and the use of nuclear weapons the potential use of nuclear weapons in ukraine what consequences will it have both short and long term from an ethical perspective aside from the immediate destruction and the death of civilians because those weapons are not as discriminate as some other kinds it will also have an impact on the environment um, in a broader sense and in a longer term so those are the kinds of questions that military ethics asks as well and these are things that, uh, from a you know, from a NATO perspective, from a Western perspective, one would consider. However, we also have to understand that the likes of Russia might be applying quite different standards and might be seeing the situation from a different perspective, and might not be using the same logic. So this is when the use of military ethics becomes interesting because you're kind of able to contrast your own perspective with that of your adversary and you you're you're trying to understand the, the logic and the reasoning your adversary might be using so from that perspective it is useful you know in this specific scenario and obviously as we're all talking about the use of uh, nuclear weapons by russia be strategic or tactical we're trying to understand what is the logic behind it how ethical or unethical is it and what mechanisms can be used Hmm. by NATO to prevent um, or to deter the use of nuclear weapons.
1: Thank you very much and just last quick question, Uh, you've done research on drones, so uh, what are the things drones can help with in emergency situations?
10: Well, drones is another important aspect which belongs to the emerging technologies which have proven that they can be quite useful on the battlefield because when we're talking about drones you know Hmm. Um, The idea is we're thinking about predator-firing missiles. But um, Uh that rhetoric has changed in recent years, so this perception, this negative perception of drones as some sort of a killer robot is fading away and is being replaced by something that can be actually quite useful in a tactical sense um, with strategic outputs. And drones are used not only for striking targets they're used for reconnaissance and target acquisition that means that they can help by saving troops they can help to um exactly locate target and guide strikes for more precision mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the first advantage of drones and the second advantage of drones and something that that is being currently researched is how drones can be used to deliver critical supplies to the battlefield without risking pilots risking um, our aircraft being shot down by adversaries air defense system so if you have a drone and if you lose a drone it's easily replaceable if you have um, a helicopter or a plane you would essentially lose not only the plane itself which is much more expensive but also um, a pilot which um, is very, very bad because pilots take a long time to train and are not as easily replaced. So obviously, from the point of view of troop protection, drones are very important because they can be used for casualty evacuation and obviously delivering critical medical supplies to the battlefield as well as delivering humanitarian help. So the use of drones right now is quite multifaceted, and, you know, one has to be creative on how one uses drones, and you have a huge selection from very heavy reconnaissance drones to to kind of smaller drones that can strike targets, but um, it opens up different kind of capabilities for the armed forces, both when it comes to offense and defense
0: yeah yeah no no most certainly most certainly um thank you uh dr Myron for, for for being with us for answering our questions and sharing your insight into this uh very important topic uh to say the least um uh, again thank you and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well
10: thank you it's been a pleasure thank you bye-bye bye-bye
0: Zero zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Ma- Marina Myron, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Defence Studies Department, King's College London, uh, who specialises in military strategic studies with a focus on Russia's military capabilities, uh, including land, air, sea, space, and cyber domains and its doctrinal thinking. Um, we're going to be going straight to our last guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Dr. Paul Dorfman, uh, who is a member of the Irish Government Environment Protection Agency radiation. Protection Advisory Committee, as well as founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group and a member of Sussex uh, Energy Group at the University of Sussex, where he is also an Associate Fellow. as alaikum. peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning.
5: Thank you for involving me.
0: You're welcome and thank you for, for being with us. Um, we we don't have too much time and we do want to ask you a fair bit of questions as well. So just quickly getting straight into them. How is nuclear safety and security ensured around the world?
5: Well, it's a bit of a piece of string. Nuclear regulation happens uh, country by country. Each country that has nuclear infrastructure has a regulatory system uh, that sort of tends to be overseen by the International Atomic Energy Agency but what they say is not mandatory it's more sort of sort of advisory
1: thank you and what impact does nuclear energy have upon the environment and how does it affect sea life and climate change
5: well the problem with nuclear is that it also uh, involves nuclear pollution including uh, normal discharges uh, discharges from accidents and incidents and, of course, uh, questions of uh, nuclear waste. Now, in terms of sea life, in the past there have been very significant nuclear dumping to the sea, which Mm -hmm. now has been restricted. Um, In terms of climate change, that's really a contested area. Some say that nuclear will be good for the climate. However, with what's happening, the fact seems to be that climate really is ramping much quicker than we thought than before, and all the recent evidence points to points to uh, very enhanced sea level rise and also uh, problems with inland water. Now, nuclear needs a large amount of water to cool reactors, which means that Mm. it's located by the sea or inland uh, by uh, large bodies of water or by the river. Now, what we know is sea levels will rise, but in the short term, that's not the issue that will be a problem storm surge, which is basically where the sea sort of ups and moves in land, may flood uh, coastal nuclear. And as we've seen already in France, uh, this summer, nuclear has started to be shut down because uh, Mm. of cooling water issues.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, some people are beginning to champion the use of nuclear power as a source of lower carbon electricity. Uh, What are your thoughts on this?
5: Well, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's uh, the problem really with nuclear is that it takes about up to 20 years to put down one reactor. Um, you know, the, the the new reactors in Finland, France, and Taiwan all took uh, around 17 to 20 years uh, to each one to build, and and each of those were largely about maybe I don't know, sometimes like five times over cost. Meanwhile. Renewables met all of the rise in electricity demand in the first half of 2022, preventing 40 billion dollar fuel, uh, fuel costs and saving about 230 megatons of CO2. Last year, renewables I mean here's the key really: Last year, renewables made up 80 percent of all new electricity generation worldwide, and a quarter of all new energy uh, electricity generation in, in, in the US. So what we're seeing really is a sort of a seismic shift towards the uh, towards the uh, renewable evolution here. Mm-hmm. Now, also, when, when one considers what's really going on, your your past speakers were speaking about uh, events in, in Ukraine. The fact is that Russia and Russia-controlled Kazakhstan controls 42% of all uranium feedstock for nuclear reactors worldwide and 20% for Europe. Now, um, uh, Russian nuclear exports are still untouched by by sanctions. So, this 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 notion that uh, somehow events uh, in Ukraine have seen an upswing in, in nuclear, it c- can be can mm-hmm. be can be really challenged.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, being an expert in uh, nuclear policy, in a worst case scenario, what would be the most severe consequences of a nuclear war?
5: Well, at the moment, we're not thinking about that in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, Putin has started to talk about tactical, so-called battlefield nuclear technology. Um, uh, these uh, weapons can be dialed up and dialed down to, you know, uh, say, 98% of, of the bomb that lands on, on, on Hiroshima. But any move by Putin... Uh, would really see just phenomenal consequences. Perhaps for him, the worst one would be the loss of China. China has an absolute no first use doctrine. And he would Mm -hmm. see himself severely, severely isolated. And NATO has said that they will wipe out uh, the Russian military uh, in Ukraine and uh, mm. and and in the the Black Sea. So, what we're talking about at the moment is a uh, sort of a game of poker, where Putin uh, is, uh, we hope, bluffing. Now, if it isn't a bluff, well, you know, all bets are off. Mm. Uh, um, the, the the reality of of nuclear is that it is, as we all know, uh, hugely destructive. Now if one looks as elsewhere, and I, I've advised uh, states, uh, states in the Gulf have asked me to advise about about this. And um, when one considers um, proxy war, for example, I mean, if, if say Russia uh, and America didn't want to blast each other to pieces, well, where would they go to now we knew that in 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 uh, in the cold war it was always going to be fought uh, in in germany well if saudi tools up if iran uh, tools up then maybe uh it would be uh in, in the middle east so the point about nuclear is that it's not necessarily a very safe thing to do for any government to go there
0: Yes, most certainly. And, uh, unfortunately, time has uh, gotten the better of us. We would love to keep the conversation going and speak for a bit longer. Uh, but, uh, it is time for the nine o'clock news now. Thank you, uh, Dr. Paul Dorfman for, for, for being with us, answering our questions and sharing your insight into this very important topic. Uh, thank you again and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. 208 is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Paul Dorfman, a member of the Irish Government Environment uh, Protection Agency Radiation Protection Advisory Committee as well as the founder of the Nuclear Consulting Group and a member of Sussex Energy uh, Sussex Energy Group at the University of Sussex where he is also an Associate Fellow sharing his thoughts with us. Um, just one last thing before we end, uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has told us that whoever is kind to the creation, God is kind to him. Therefore, be kind to man on earth, whether he be good or bad, and being kind to the bad is to withhold them from badness. Uh, That brings us to an end for today's show. Thank you to everyone who was involved, the researchers, the producers, and most importantly, the guests and our listeners as well. Thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead.